Um, so I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we are coming to the conclusion of this chapter. Uh, interestingly enough, though, it's a chapter that concludes a very long section. I, I'm, I meant to go back and look at the date in which we started our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But it's been a minute. Just to remind you, you have this opening verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols, this reference to an issue that had been brought up to the Apostle Paul through correspondence from Corinth. And then he goes on to say in chapter 8 verse 1, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So he begins to immediately identify what is fundamentally wrong with the people of Corinth and the church at Corinth is that they are motivated by uh, self-interest and a knowledge that they think they possess that is in contrast or really is contrary to the virtue and practice of love in the body. And then he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something he doesn't yet know as he ought to know, Excuse me, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Driving home this supreme virtue and principle of love in the body. And then he moves into this more detailed discussion about food being offered to idols as a point of contention within the body of Christ. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And then he gets to sort of the heart of the contention that he's having to deal with. He says, verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, Eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So you have these weaker conscienced fellow believers in the life of the church who the practice for them of eating food sacrificed to idols provokes their conscience and potentially opens up avenues for other areas of sin or just falling in weakness in this new, new faith, this new growing and maturing faith. And then he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So the Apostle Paul is defending a liberty, a freedom for believers in the church in this particular context to partake of food that had been sacrificed to idols because after all, an idol is nothing. But he's... He's cautioning against the abuse of that liberty, especially when the abuse of that liberty becomes what he calls a stumbling block to the weak. And he makes this point even more fierce as he moves through this opening section of chapter 8, because he says, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Really intense language that he employs here. The brother for whom Christ died. Those of you that understand that an idol is nothing, so that eating food sacrificed to idols has no meaning, no material or spiritual significance or meaning. It is a liberty. But in so doing, those of you who have that knowledge, true knowledge, in fact, but are carrying or using such knowledge according to your puffed-up sense of importance or entitlement, that you, exercising that liberty in the body of Christ, not only creates a stumbling block, but he uses this term, destroys another brother. This brother for whom Christ died. So he's placing upon the church some very intense responsibilities as it relates to thinking about Christian liberty. It goes on, verse 12, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So the interesting irony in all of this is that what starts off as legitimate Christian liberty that in and of itself 
and a standalone assessment does not constitute sinful activity. In other words, Scripture does not prohibit it, so therefore you can engage in it. There's no explicit command against this. And after all, if you kind of peel back the the layers of understanding about this particular matter, an idol is nothing. There is only one true God. And so indeed, there is nothing inherently sinful about eating food sacrificed to idols. And yet, in pursuing such a liberty, you can ultimately sin against your brother for whom Christ died and sin against Christ himself. So, in fact, the exercise of legitimate Christian liberty can become a matter of sin in the life of the church. And this is what he's been walking us through for all these chapters, all the way through chapter 10, even the first verse of of chapter 11 that kind of wraps this section up. And we've been kind of unpacking this all this time. But you get to verse 23 and you start to see these concluding remarks as he sort of ties this whole argument up into a nice package, and you find in this last section some incredible summations, not just of the argument that he's been engaging in around this matter of food that's been sacrificed to idols, but you really find an incredible summation of what it means to be a faithful Christian. Really some incredible verses that, that one in particular that I know is going to be familiar to you, but In fact, let's just look at it. We'll skip to chapter 10, verse 31. This is where you find that well-known verse, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we know that you have this broad summary kind of verse about the nature of faithfulness in the Christian life. It basically is that in summary, in everything, you're called to glorify God. But again, he's also in the specific wrapping up this argument about the abuse or the proper use of Christian liberty in various contexts, and especially as it affects those fellow believers in life in the body of Christ. And so starting in verse 23, he'll begin with a familiar slogan that we've seen before. We'll talk about it a little bit more in just a moment. But let's read this passage together. We'll read uh, verse 23 all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. He says in verse 23 of chapter 10, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We've been looking at this larger discussion of life or faithfulness in the midst of a world awash in idolatry. And of course, this last section that we dealt with at length in chapter 10, really Paul narrows the scope to not just the partaking of food sacrificed to idols as sort of an inert, benign activity that could be just a matter of Christian liberty and it really is, doesn't mean anything, to the actual participation in the, the practice or the ritual practices, if you will, of some kind of idolatrous activity, or really trafficking habitually in the environments that are idolatrous and thereby participating and sort of aligning yourself with the, what, what I would just refer to as the, the habits or norms of that particular idolatrous environment, that particular gathering of people who are characterized by idolatry. And... and and in so doing, you, you, will, you are basically participants 
in that idolatry. That you cannot, you cannot have it both ways. You can't, he says, partake of the cup of the Lord and partake of the cup of demons. You can't participate in both of those things simultaneously. You bring a, a corruption to that. And so he's been dealing with this individual matter of idolatry, but here he begins to broaden it back out again as he wraps up this entire argument. And, and so I want to kind of talk today, I want to kind of summarize our discussion, probably this week and next week, really talking about the broader matter of walking faithfully, not just in, 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 as it relates to idolatry, not just as it relates to uh, matters of Christian liberty, though that is a particular context that we will draw out, but just in general, I want to talk broadly about the principles that we find in this passage because in, in, in understanding these things and really in, in reson, having these things resonate in our hearts regularly, it does empower us and strengthen us and inform our conscience about how we can walk faithfully. The fact of the matter is, is that the, the larger sweep of this particular section is really not just addressing weak believer, strong believer, weak conscience believer, strong conscience believer... It is really addressing the entire sweep of Christians and moving them from points of immaturity to maturity. The aim in the Apostle Paul's instruction here is mature Christian living that is informed by sound and mature biblical thinking on all these matters. And if you think about the nature of the Christian life as you grow and mature especially as that coincides with just natural growth and maturity and development as you get older in life, is it not indeed true that what we are often grappling with are not the most stark moral decisions of life? Should I, should I violate this command or not? This clear and explicit prohibition in Scripture, should I go ahead and do it or not? Most believers who are maturing and growing, and even most adults who understand sort of what's needed to have a productive and fruitful and healthy kind of general life and have responsibilities that sort of tap into the needs and desires and expectations and hopes of other people, employees, family, that kind of thing, just the natural course of growth and maturity, it sort of begins to delineate for most people a clear sense of what is primarily right and what is primarily wrong, what is overtly and clearly explicitly good and what is overtly and clearly explicitly evil. But where we often stumble or struggle or where we often run into tension are in all of those in-between spaces, in between the clear and the explicit, in those points of relationship contention or challenge in those interesting and unique and maybe rather nuanced scenarios with fellow employees at at the workplace, in in our social interactions, maybe in a school environment. It's, it's, It's how do we navigate those ebb and flow, day to day life entanglements and engagements and relationships and decisions with a sense of clarity and wisdom. When the answer for the next step or the next word or the next action is not something that is explicitly articulated or defined in Scripture so that you can just go, oh, that's what I do. Or I just won't do that. That's where a lot of us live a lot of our lives. And in fact, that, I believe, is what begins to distinguish, if you will, I don't mean that in a, in a superlative sense, but it begins to distinguish those who are still in, in places of less maturity with those who are more mature. You, you, you sit down and you visit with someone who's lived a little bit of life and who's walked with the Lord for a lengthy period of time and they have wrestled with and grappled with many, many issues through the scriptures, through the lens of biblical truth. And the things that are so sort of hazy and unclear to you as you're talking to them, for them, it's crystal clear. And so that's the kind of maturity that the Apostle Paul is is pulling us toward in this passage. And again, it's also rebuke to these Corinthians because they thought that they knew. 
They had knowledge that they thought that they had that puffed them up, but it wasn't knowledge based upon real truth, and so they were acting out of selfishness rather than acting out of love. So I want to talk about some of these principles. Really, I don't know if I'll get very far into this uh, today, but the the first thing I want to point our attention to as it relates to this matter of walking consistently and ever more consistently in faithfulness is to recognize that regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the circumstance, it's usually not about you. So, don't make it about you. I'm going to say that again, because I know it's like so master, the vocabulary in this phrase is just like, do you have to look up some of these words? They're so high-minded. Regardless of the circumstance, it's usually not about you. So don't make it about you. This is what he's saying really broadly throughout this section, but just listen to the first couple of verses here. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's the principle here. This is a familiar phrase, as I said, all things are lawful. He, he uses this back in chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Same phrase. But then he goes in a more individualized direction in that particular section. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So in that particular chapter, he's dealing with this matter of carnal, physical cravings, principally of food and sex. And he he responds to this sort of slogan of the Corinthians, all things are lawful, or all things are permissible, might be a better translation. All things are permissible. We have liberty here. And he individualizes the response. Yes, but I will not be mastered by anything, he says. And he goes on to talk about how this becomes a matter of you being enslaved to these things and that you are not the owner of your body and that your body was created for the Lord, therefore flee sexual immorality. He's going after their thinking at a core level, but this is a very individualized emphasis in chapter 6. Whereas here, it's others driven. It's, it's others focused. Because he says in that second half, after he says the same thing, all things are lawful for me, but all, and all things are helpful, rather than saying something like, I will not be dominated by anything, he says, not all things build up. Not all things edify. Not all things serve to encourage and strengthen others, is the emphasis here. And then he rounds that out with what is, in fact, a command. This is an imperative in verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. That's the command of these two verses. This is the same kind of idea that the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Or Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on in that very familiar passage to talk about the incarnation. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself. He emptied himself. And he became a servant. And he became obedient to the point of death. This is the model for us. So the the general principle here that I just want to kind of put in front of us is to recognize that in, in virtually every circumstance of life, and when I, there shouldn't be a follow up question like, well, which circumstances? Almost all. Just think of every circumstance, almost every circumstance of life. It's usually not about you. It's usually not about me. And so the command is, don't make it about you, but rather think about what's going to build someone else up. Think about what the need of someone else might be. Now here's, here's, the, here's the convicting point of all this. 
all the time. All the time. I've said this many times before, how misery loves company, and so when I'm made miserable by my own conviction and my own study, I feel compelled to draw you into that misery as well. Think about this very revealing exercise for a minute. Not right this second, because then you might, you might be distracted, but maybe later today or something, I don't know, tomorrow or something. Spend about five minutes, just five minutes, very intensely and very purposely thinking about your thinking, reflecting upon what you think about and how you think and what thought processes you've gone through. Maybe even be prepared to jot down some of your reflections. And just do that based upon maybe just the prior 24-hour period of time. Just, just a small sliver of time, of recent, immediately recent time. Think very intently, very carefully. Reflect upon not what you did the last 24 hours, not what you accomplished, not where you went, Those will be sort of the symptoms. Those will be sort of the effects of everything. But think about your thinking that was behind all of that. Think about your thinking. And then with brutal and unvarnished clarity, try to identify all the thoughts in which you were the central point of reference. Your interests, your time, your goals your priorities, your idealistic dreams about what your life should look like, your desire for attention or recognition, even your satisfaction in how others' accomplishments will reflect well on you. Parents with children, this is a big one. We can easily, very easily, be completely motivated by self-interest in the way that we parent our kids and all that we do for them. Because we want our kids to reflect well on us. You have that kind of thought exercise, and you will begin to see that this kind of radical readjustment is not a small thing. We are oriented around self-interest way more than we would like to admit. Way more than we are even conscious of. That's why I kind of challenge you to do the exercise. Because you have to kind of do a little bit of thought work about your thinking to even recognize all the points in which your central point of reference is primarily you. It's what motivates our responses to things. It's what drives the priorities that we set. It's what affects us and provokes us and raises our ire emotionally when things don't align well with us. And so this this broad sweeping principle to recognize that most of the time, in most circumstances of life, it's usually not about you, so don't make it about you. Imagine the liberty. In this whole discussion about true liberty... Imagine the bondage that we sink into simply because we are ever so subtly at times, but ever so comprehensively consumed by self-interest. But imagine the liberty, the liberty that Christ brings in his saving work that draws us into a life of comprehensive and consummate self-sacrifice. That's why the world does not understand Christianity. How is it that you die and therefore live? That doesn't make any sense. How is it that you serve rather than desiring to be served? How is it that you give so that you will receive? And yet this is the very fundamental essence of true life in Christ that is characterized by true liberty. And if you kind of wrap all of this up in what we've been talking about with these, these Corinthians and really reflecting upon ourselves as well, 
this is, this is where this, this discussion or this debate or this internal dialogue goes as it relates to liberty or what we have the right to do or what, we, what, what it's okay for us to do or what is permissible for us to do. It's that we're thinking about what is okay for us. What is right for us? What is fine for us? What is permissible for us? And the Apostle Paul is saying, that's the wrong starting point. Because not all things build up. Even that thing that you think you should be able to do that is in a vacuum, if you will, permissible. What if it destroys the weaker brother? Or what if it just simply is not something that's characterized by building up? So this is the call for us that we are to to not make things about us because most things are not about us. And we're under the delusion that they are. But in life in Christ, it's all about the glory of God and it's all about the building up of other people, serving others. He kind of builds this out in these couple of scenarios. You basically have what follows here. Two scenarios comprised of three decisions, all of which contain one primary objective. You have scenario one, a public market, and scenario two, an unbeliever's home, a dinner party at an unbeliever's home. You have decision one, eat. Decision two, eat. Decision three, wait, don't eat. You see what I'm saying? Like, do I or do I not? How do I make this decision? What's the right thing to do? What's the wrong thing to do? The second eat and don't eat all happens in the same context. How do you you unravel that? This is the Apostle Paul using these actual real scenarios in the first century Corinth to make the very point that he's driving home here. If you have a singular objective across all of those scenarios, in the midst of all of those social dynamics, and regardless of the people or the relationships that might be involved, your guiding principle will be sound. And you will be able to walk and make decisions in these various contexts that bring glory to God. The one objective is to seek the good of another. So look at scenario number one. Verse 25 and 26. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. So here's a simple scenario. In the meat market of that day, there would be food sacrificed to idols. That's where it would end up in many occasions. So you go into the meat market, and the, the, the admonition here is whatever you do, Do not fabricate some kind of moral dilemma where there's not one. Do not take some sense of self-referential, self-produced conscience issue into a public domain and manufacture some sort of moral dilemma where there is not one existent at all. We do this under the guise of some sense of moral purity or righteousness or you know, some strong conscience issue. But ultimately, it's very possible that all we're doing in those situations is drawing attention to ourselves. There are many, many, many believers who get caught in the trap of checking moral boxes. And just, just to note... <clears throat> This address by the Apostle Paul, he's speaking primarily to those who are weak in conscience and those who are strong in conscience. But as I've said before, those are not two different categories of people. Those are two different categories of conscience that spread across all people depending upon the issue or the time or what happens to be going on or what the challenge is. And so in this particular case, you go into a public domain, any kind of public domain, I I could think of, 
any number of, of scenarios. It might be a, a workplace situation. I, I used to be in a job where I would you know, regularly find myself in scenarios where, you know, like trade show, big, big shows in Vegas and that kind of thing. You find yourself in these environments where, I mean, my conscience was assaulted nonstop. Like, you're just, it's a beatdown. How many of you have had to do, like, lengthy trade show stuff, like, in Las Vegas? Anybody have to do that? You, prob- you probably know what I'm talking about. I mean, it is, it, it can be a very oppressive, weighty, exhausting kind of scenario because you're just inundated with, things that are provoking your conscience. So in that kind of setting, I'm basically in the meat market where there's food that's been sacrificed to idols hanging all around me. Like it's bumping on me. Like I've got nasty idol meat like slip all over me in Vegas. I mean, that's what happens in Vegas. <laughs> and so the scenario would be, here I am, and my, my, my conscience is being provo- like literally being provoked. The way that the women dress, the, the, the attendants in the hotel, I mean, it's everywhere, constantly. People trying to hand you flyers for this and that. It's, it's, I'm telling you, it is like a full-on assault of a Christian's conscience. You get in that kind of environment, and I could make a big stink about every little thing. I could be walking along the sidewalk with my colleagues, Maybe a few are believers and others are not. And someone tried to hand me some flyer to some kind of, you know, location of ill repute, we'll call it. And I could just, oh, I am not, I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't, that just, I despise, I make a big stink. I make a big scene. And Paul's point here is that basically you're, t- you're using conscience as a means to not care about other people but to build yourself up, to puff yourself up, to draw attention to yourself under the guise of conscience. He says, don't ask questions in the meat market. Don't go up to the counter and say, can you trace the lineage of that side of beef there? And where, I mean, he's using this example to kind of draw out a little bit of the absurdity of that kind of thing. Don't ask questions, he says. Don't raise any question on the ground of conscience. And, and really the point here that he makes, he, he quotes from Psalm 24, because there is no matter of conscience. And this is where he wants to sort of drive home the point. You get into that kind of situation, and he's, it's particularly as it relates to food being sacrificed to idols, there is no moral dilemma in that scenario. There is no conscience issue. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who will stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He's talking about, the psalmist is talking about someone who has integrity of heart. Not just an outward manifestation of righteousness. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This is the the psalm that he quotes in brief there. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I mean, the, the food that's been provided to you is not tainted by this sacrificial system. If it's just hanging there for, for partaking of as a, as, a, as a point of sustenance, a matter of sustenance, a means of sustenance. And so don't go into that environment and do something that's not going to be about the building up of others. That's the point. So in other words, if your conscience is troubled by the possibility of some tainted inanimate object, some, some environment that you find yourself in, simply move on without raising moral objections based solely upon your own sense of conscience. The one objective here is the good of another, seeking the good of another. Not drawing attention to yourself, not drawing attention to your righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That's the principle. 
whether you eat or whether you don't eat. There's no moral dilemma to fabricate here. And he's basically guiding even the weak conscience believer in this sense. Remember, he's addressing all the believers. He's not just trying to say, you know, listen, this is just sort of special information for those of you who are mature, because I know the weak ones won't even understand what I'm saying. No, he's addressing all of them. And those of us that might have a little more sensitive conscience, maybe even legitimately so, and we find ourselves in an environment where that conscience is being assaulted in some way, but it's a public environment, our first thought not, ought, ought not to be how I'm feeling about the matter. What's troubling me about this situation? Our first thought, this is where that, that conviction and that discipline has to be refortified. My first thought ought to be, what is going to be good for the building up of another? The fact of the matter is, is if we were just paying attention for a little bit, we don't have to go to Vegas to have our consciences assaulted all the time, right? So we need to be mindful of the fact that even in an environment in which there are legitimate, debased activities, there's licentiousness, there's wickedness, there's dishonesty, there's all kinds of things that we're encountering in a fallen world all the time, that from the standpoint of pure righteousness, of pure truth, they are an affront both to us and to God. And yet, our first instinct is not, let me think about how I respond to how offended I am by all of this. It is, what would be best to build up another? This is what the Apostle Paul talks about at the end of this particular section, he, he says, just like so explicitly, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. And this is the laser focus that the Apostle Paul is consistently putting in front of us. That the natural, natural gravitational pull of our own flesh and even of our own sense of self-preservation and our sinful sense of self-interest is, how is this affecting me? How does this make me feel? How is this going to cause me to stumble? And he's trying to pull us out of that, even the weak conscience believer, pull them out of that sense of like, even if I go into a public marketplace, into a public meat market, somehow I've got a right to be offended everywhere I go. And we, as believers, need to recognize that we're living in a day and time in which we are being trained to be offended by everything. We are inundated with messages and the angle of, of information that's being presented. So much of it is oriented around rallying constituents around some point of offense. And we're living in a day and time where we could just be walking around offended all the time. And I can assure you, because I read this somewhere, I have no personal experience with this. <laughs> but you can feel a sense of offense all the time. And what I know to be true is that when I'm feeling offended, I am not at all thinking about what I could be doing to build someone else up. At all. It's the farthest thing from my mind. This is why this is such an important, it's simple, such a simple principle, but it cuts so deep. It cuts so deep. So in this first very simple and very sort of common scenario, you have this decision, don't raise a stink. Don't raise moral objection where there is no moral dilemma. Recognize that your conscience may be assaulted, but turn your focus outward. How is your action, your engagement in this public space going to actually build someone else up? Actually maintain open avenues for the gospel, the Apostle Paul might add to it. Versus draw all the attention to yourself and your personal offense. And then you have the second scenario. Go on to... 
verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So this, that's the first part of the scenario. This is kind of, a, kind of a, maybe a similar scenario as to what I described about a work situation where you know, someone's invited you to something or you've, been, you know, you've got a work responsibility that you have to go to, some type of work dinner or, or even a, a, a neighbor who's an unbeliever and they want to have you over. What should we as believers expect when we are socializing in some way with unbelievers? What should we expect? Unbelieving kinds of activity, unbelieving kinds of speech, unbelieving kinds of priorities being expressed. We should should go into those situations expecting there to be that kind of thing going on, possibly. Not, Not going into that situation expecting to raise up the mantle of our righteousness so that everybody can see and be convicted by our righteous indignation at some element that's brought to bear in that context. But in this particular situation, it would not be uncommon, particularly in Corinth, for believers to be engaging in social relationships with unbelievers. There was a, not unlike today, there was a a sort of a social standing, there was a, a networking kind of reality that was in play, there was there were obligations that people would have just sort of in the, in the societal milieu that, that kind of compelled them to partake in social gatherings and meals and whatnot with unbelievers. And so he says here, you know, if someone invites you and you're disposed to go, so he's not calling out the fact that you would be disposed to go and have this meal with someone. There's, no, there's nothing wrong inherently with, with having a meal with an unbeliever. And, and let's say that, that that meal is potentially serving up, in this particular context, the kind of food that had been sacrificed to idols. He just says simply, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. It's basically the same principle as in the market. Don't, don't draw attention to yourself. That's kind of the core principle here. Don't make this about you. Be thinking, when that food is served, what might I do to build them up? Now, I'll admit, that can be hard for me just because of the particular nature of my palate. I mean, if someone puts something in front of me, I might be like, oof, I don't know if I can do that. But even in that kind of situation, I don't have to submit to that kind of preference. Obviously, in this kind of scenario, we're talking about actual points of potential conscience provocation because it could be food that's sacrificed to idols. And he gives the same instruction. You're to be thinking about what would build up. You don't, you don't raise any question as a matter of conscience. But then you have this other sort of angle on that same scene. He says in verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then he says, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you And for the sake of conscience. So he makes clear that the rationale for not eating at that point is not you. Once again, it's for the sake of the the person who raised this this concern, this little new bit of information. This this has been offered in sacrifice. That that is, by the way, you'll notice that probably in your translation it's kind of in quotations. Obviously, that's not the punctuation in the original language. But that it's, it's, it's written like that in the English translations because that is a bit of a technical description. That this is, in fact, and without any kind of suspicion or lack of clarity, this is food that has just been sacrificed to idols. It's almost as though the, 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 the indication is that you're basically about to partake of something that was just offered in sacrifice. So the closeness... The proximity, even, of the sacrificial act is sort of in view here. It's a very technical way of of describing what's being served. And so, the instruction here by the Apostle Paul is, in this scenario, do not eat. Do the exact opposite of what he just asked you to do when this particular scenario shifts 
in this direction. And then he says, I do not mean for your conscience, but for his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, this, this part here has been a little bit confusing to me, and maybe it's a little bit confusing to you. One question that emerges from this particular passage is, who is this person that says, hey, by the way, psst, been sacrificed to idols? Is that a fellow believer who happens to be at the unbeliever's house? Or is it an unbeliever who is aware of the convictions of believing Christians and really Jews? The same was for Jews, which, by the way, in that particular context, Christianity would just have been viewed as, a, by the unbelieving world, it, would, it, it was viewed as just an offshoot of Judaism. And so there was this cultural knowledge that this could be kind of like a problem. And so maybe there was an unbeliever who was also there at this meal who's saying, hey, just so you know, I mean, I, I know that this is probably a thing for you. Like, I'm going to eat all of it. It might be a thing for you. Just so you know, this has been sacrificed to idols. Now you're in a bit of a dilemma. So the, the, there's, I, I've read arguments from both directions. And both yield up the same kind of core objective. What will be for the good of building one another up? The point is, is that we don't know for sure. It doesn't tell us in the text for sure. Is this a believer or is this an unbeliever? We don't know. The fact of the matter is, is that the decision that you make is to be for the good of another, and the rationale that's given is oriented around that same objective. So let me try to articulate, articulate it kind of from both particular perspectives. In this case, if it was a believer, which is the easier one to sort of ascertain, if it's a fellow believer, then immediately the call shifts. I'm no longer interested in making sure I don't cause some kind of social offense for the host of the meal. I'm way more concerned now about my brother or my sister whose conscience is being provoked. This weaker brother or sister, as I've already read from other passages of Scripture, I have an obligation Paul would say in Romans, I have an obligation to this weaker brother to watch out for them and to not do anything that would cause them to stumble. So immediately in that social context, the Apostle Paul would say, you might have to offend those out there, the unbelievers, when you know that you've got a fellow brother who is weak that is struggling. You don't want to put a stumbling block in them. That's an easy one. Very clear. Another argument, though, would be, well, what if this is just more of a casual unbeliever saying, hey, I know that this is kind of a problem for you guys, you Christian Jewish people, you know, just let you know this is what's going on here. Well, some commentators would say that that would be a scenario where you're, you're sort of in, in a place where you need to uphold a sense of Christian conviction that has been ex- expressed in some way by this unbeliever just for the sake of making sure that you keep avenues for the gospel open for that unbeliever. So you don't eat. Some, for some reason, this unbeliever has in their minds that there's something problematic if you were to eat this food. And so he says, just don't eat it. Don't eat it. But the point and the motivating point here is, is that my driving objection, my driving objection, objective, excuse me, is what is going to be for the good of another? What is going to be for the building of another up? And then the decision is made. Now, the danger in all of this, particularly when you look at these scenarios, is that you can even get excessively legalistic in your outlook on these two scenarios. This is a very small and short description of social settings that could have all kinds of things going on in them. And there's going to be times where we have to just make discernment, wisdom, principle kind of calls. And the the test for us in that is to ask ourselves the question, what is motivating my thinking right now? And if I'm driven by the building up of another, then I make the decision and I move forward, knowing that I'm moving forward in grace. And this is the principle.
Such dinners, one commentator said, were extremely common. It was a key to establishing social and political networks, as I said. To fail to receive an invitation would be a sign of social marginalization. But to fail to act according to a change in circumstance in that setting would be a failure to consider what would be driven by the benefit or blessing or building up of another. We're going to talk next time. We're short on time. I want to draw out this next principle about what it looks like for us to glorify God. Verse 31, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're going to talk about that at length next time. But this principle overarches everything that the Apostle Paul has been talking about up to this point in this passage. John Calvin summarizes this larger glory of God principle like this. He says, there is no part of our life, whether we're shopping in a market or whether we're having a meal with unbelieving friends or associates, or whatever it might be, there is no part of our life and no action so minute that it ought not to be directed to the glory of God and that we must take care that even in eating and drinking, we may aim at the advancement of it. So we need to be challenged today in our thinking. We need to be challenged in our thinking. Are we consistently thinking about the building up of others? Because it's always, almost always not about me. It's almost always not about you. And so, therefore, we ought not make it about us. When you bring this into the broader context of life in the body of Christ, you can easily see how this begins to formulate the foundations of a healthy, thriving church. Let's pray.